So I'm gonna kick it off with a little background of you, Gaurav, and then I have some questions based on the incredible playbook articles you wrote. So context, we just launched our product-led sales playbook that you can find on Pocus.com about two days ago. And in that, we interviewed Gaurav for a chapter, but he had so many insights that we actually had to break it out into two chapters. So a lot of this conversation will be about, we can touch on some of the details from there if you had a chance to read it. And I have lots of other questions on the secrets of Superhuman because I think it's one of my favorite products ever. Quick background on Gaurav. Um, He has spent over eight years at Superhuman leading growth, product marketing and analytics. And then as the head of growth, he led a team of 35 across go-to-market and grew revenue from zero to 10 million plus. And while leading product and marketing, he grew team revenue over 300% year over year. And as head of analytics, he built a data science team to support the entire company. And now he's advising Superhuman as well as other startups on all things, sounds like product-led growth, analytics, go-to-market, all of those good things. So really excited for you to be here. Anything I missed on your intro, Gaurav? I think you did a really great job there. Thank you. Um, I'm based in San Francisco. I am born and raised in the UK, hence my accent. Um, I have a little one at home who I'm absolutely obsessed with. And yeah, I'm, I'm just really interested in all things growth. So that spans the range from marketing, through product, through analytics, through sales, really anything that grows companies, businesses, products with a core focus on just bringing great experiences to more and more people in the world. So that's kind of like my core intrinsic motivation when it comes to growth. And hopefully that resonates with a lot of people here as well. I love it. The first thing I want to touch on is maybe some of you have seen, because I've read this article a bunch of times, but Superhuman, you came out with an article and kind of metrics and leading indicators for product market fit. And product market fit for startups is kind of this like arbitrary thing. It's like, how do I know I have product market fit? And you came in with a clear measurable goal, which it sounds like you're very data-driven for every approach you take. So I'd love to start out with just how you came up with these, what those metrics are, how you came up with leading indicators of product market fit and any perspectives there. As an analytics uh, leader, I, I, you know, maybe it's counterintuitive that I'm an advocate for being data informed as opposed to data driven as the data person. But I think it's really important to look at and use data as a huge part of your decision making, but not the only part and certainly not the driver necessarily. You have to have good intuitions. You have to have good first principle belief and logic as to what you think the right next step should be. And, you know, at best, maybe data would be 60 to 70% of a given important business decision. It could be as low as 20% of a decision with 80% being gut instinct and yeah, logic, first principles, reasoning. And the reason I bring that up is because when it comes to product market fit, honestly, a, a ton of it is that intuitive gut feeling. And I'll share a little bit about how we how we think about both the data side, those leading indicators that you mentioned, as well as some of the supplemental intuitions that it's really important, I think, to develop that sort of innate sense for. So product market fit, what's product market fits? It's been written about a lot in Silicon Valley and in tech. I think Paul Graham wrote you know, a seminal essay on the topic. I think Mark Andreessen built on that thinking. They both sort of said the same thing, which is like product market fits is the only important thing for a startup at the beginning. Getting to product market fit should be the only focus. It should precede any form of growth work of trying to scale. If you do not have product market fit, any attempts to grow will be futile. You need to figure out how you solve your customers' problems. You need to make sure that your product therefore fits into the market, also that the market is sufficiently big. If you do not have product market fit, then you need to keep changing the core product or iterating or going after different people until you do find product market fit. 
Now, a lot was written conceptually about this, but there wasn't a super great way of frameworkizing it or formalizing how you measure that. And so what we did in early days superhuman was recognize that it's going to take some time if we're building the fastest and best email experience in the world for us to reach product market fit. You know, and we need to measure it as we go and, and understand how close or far away are we. There were some early thoughts and some early frameworks put together. Sean Ellis, um, who led product and growth over at Dropbox and is kind of well-known in the, in the growth industry, initially posed this idea of asking customers a question, particularly customers who have experienced the core value of your product. So they have gotten past the activation or aha moment, uh, asking them the question, how disappointed would you be if you could not use the product tomorrow? And giving them three choices, not disappointed, somewhat disappointed, uh, and very disappointed. And he puts forward this idea that the percentage of users who are in your ICP, we'll talk a little bit more about ICPs later, I, I imagine, the percentage that say that they would be very disappointed should be 40% or more. If you're at that benchmark, then you're at product market fit, at least with the, those users, that persona. If you're below that percentage, you don't have product market fit. Your users don't care enough about the products such that they would be disappointed if it went away tomorrow. So really early days, superhuman, you know, literally one morning I was like, we need to have some measure of these things. So I put together a type form, set up an automation that emailed customers that had gotten past the aha moment. So it was around week two of that journey. And it emailed customers with a link to the type form. The type form included this very disappointed question. There are other questions in there like NPS and qualitative, you know, tell me why you answered that type questions. But at the end of the day, what we really care about is keeping a track of that percentage, very disappointed score. And to continually measure it because product market fits something you can attain. It's also something you can uh, slide out of if the market moves or if your product no longer meets the needs of the evolved customer profile. And so we keep measuring it. We measure it to this very day and we also segment it by different types of customer as well. So that was, I mean, that's like the key indicator. That's the, the key sort of measure of product market fit. I can also talk a little bit more if interesting, Alexi, let me know about some even more leading indicators, kind of engagement metrics, those sorts of things. But I will just quickly share what's the intuitive, what's the sort of more qualitative half of product market fit? Because um, with companies I speak to, sometimes they have the quantitative uh, version of product market fit, but the founders don't feel it. And that's really important. The feeling that we reflected on was this idea that the market is pulling the product out of your hands faster than you can build it. They're literally ripping it out of your arms and you're struggling to keep up with building. That's an intuitive feeling that you should have at the same time as seeing 40% or more very disappointed. If you have both of those, then you definitely have product market fit. I'll pause there. I realize that maybe yeah, I could talk more about metrics and leading indicators, but I'm seeing a bunch of questions come in in the chat. So I'm happy to bounce it back. Yeah, I really appreciate the concept that it's qualitative and quantitative. Also that what Sandy posted, it's not one and done. I think a lot of people are like, we reached product market fit. Now everything is great. And what does product market fit even mean? And to me, there's different types of product market fit. Like as you keep growing, maybe you want to expand internationally. Do you have product market fit there? Or maybe right. you want to launch a new feature set. Do you have product market fit there? And I think of it as a continuous evolution of what product market fit is in your organization. There are a couple of questions around, I think it's interesting, why 40%, why not 50%? Like, how did you land on that metric and determine also the next question 
um, what that aha moment is. What is the 40% and then what is the qualitative aha moment? How did you get there? Yeah, totally. So the 40% and 50%, I think that comes from experience, particularly, I think, Sean Ellis, actually, you know, when he moved on to advising and working with loads of companies, if I recall correctly, I think he'd worked with close to around 100 companies and had deployed some version or form of this kind of survey, not always an ongoing thing, sometimes a one-off measurement, that sort of thing. But I think he had triangulated around 40% by looking at the companies that by other indicators had product market fit and therefore worked his way back to the 40% line. At the end of the day, it's a line in the sand, right? Like so many KPIs or targets, it's just a line in the sand. There are companies that have, you know, 60, 70, 80% very disappointed. If I recall correctly, I think Slack was up there in the 70% plus region in its earlier days. And that's good. You know, if you have 80% versus 60, that's better, right? <laughs> if you have 60 versus 40, that's better. But I think where the, where the line in the sand came from was some of that early triangulation. In terms of the aha moment, for us, actually the aha moment and our definition of that has changed. But at a more meta level, how we defined it, we looked at the behaviors and activities that seemed to be correlated with subsequently retaining, right? And so we then make an, a causal inference. We, we therefore conclude that doing those activities and behaviors is the thing that gets them to retain. That's basically it. We also need to go into that whole exercise with a ton of hypotheses and intuitions. It's almost impossible to derive that through just data alone. You have to have a belief, knowing your product inside out, to say, hey, I think, I think what our aha moment is when, in Superhuman's case, Maybe it's when they hit inbox zero, or maybe it's actually when they archive 10 emails, right? Or maybe it's when they stop using Gmail and any other mail app. And so then maybe those are like three or four sort of hypotheses you go in. You can do some regression analyses. You can do some basic correlation analyses and you sort of figure out, hey, these are the ones that seem to be the most correlated. And you can like do the causal kind of inference data science and seem to be causally connected. Then you pick that. So I said ours changed over time. Our most recent incarnation of the aha moment is you have taken 50 clearing actions, meaning that 50 conversations in your inbox have either been archived or moved to a folder or snoozed. That tells us that you get it. From a workflow point of view, you understand it. You don't need to hit inbox zero, but you know, by taking 50 actions, you're pretty darn close towards hitting inbox zero. And that's a really great proxy for just about all the other value moments. And then at that point, that's a great moment to ask those customers or to begin to put those customers in the pool of people you would survey for product market fit. How did you figure out, so the 50, like clearing out 50 items. Um, so to me, that's like hitting E a bunch in superhuman. <laughs> that seems like a data point that you can capture. The point around, do they no longer go to Gmail? That might be an aha moment. How were you tracking all this? Or is it literally calling up customers, surveying them and being and saying, are you here yet? And is this what you're doing? Tell me about your day-to-day to then inform your inching closer to product market fit. Yeah, absolutely. So in our case, uh, you know, we from our product metrics can see if someone's activity is basically dropped off a cliff. And we have in our case, like we with an email client, you can assume they're doing email every day, right? Unless they're on vacation um, or they've changed jobs, and so the email address is no longer valid. But for the most part, you can assume email is a daily use case. And so if we saw in our activity a flatline, that's when we know that hey, they've probably gone back. They have gone back. Um, and of course, we were also early on really you know, hands-on with our customers. We would concierge onboard everybody. 
Uh, we would speak to our customers multiple times in their lifetime. So we really knew, we just knew when they were or weren't using the product. So we used that as, our, as one of our early benchmarks. And then over time, you know, that, had, like I said, has evolved. It's more about these days, clearing actions, understanding the workflow, kind of getting it as a more direct indicator of, of understanding the, the core essence of the product's value. And then all the other stuff can come later, right? Migrating off previous tools, installing various apps on mobile devices, like all that stuff can happen later on. I love the, I know you mentioned the human-led onboarding. I love that experience of having someone do the concierge onboarding for you. I'm curious how you think about that and how you scale that over time. I think there was a bit on this in the focus playbook uh, that if folks are interested, uh, I think maybe has a bit more detail, maybe some more numbers. I think the basic, the basic premise is this, when you're beginning to, when you're beginning to build your product, the most valuable thing that you can do right uh, at the start is talk to your customers and to talk to them ideally while they're using your product. Because if you just, you know, if you do user studies or focus groups, you're going to hear a bunch of nonsense that's not actually to do with your product uh, being used there and then. And onboarding is one of the best moments. In fact, it's like the richest point in a customer's journey to see if they get it, to understand what their pain points are, to see how the product is kind of bringing them closer to value. And for us, the onboarding was this opportunity to get a customer to reach value within 30 minutes or less, as defined by they say, I love it, or they hit inbox zero, or you know, something happens, then you know, you walk away from the onboarding as the person leading it with a feeling that, yeah, they got it. And that was great. So super early on, the reason for onboarding was help users get to value, but also from the company's side, see all the bugs, capture all the feature requests, mm-hmm. you know, build the rapport and the, the sort of human connection such that you know the customer will come back and email you when they encounter a bug rather than just churning. Um, they'll feel good about the company, even if they do eventually churn. So brand building. And also, crucially, taking billing details. I mean, candidly, early on, the onboarding was an an opportunity to say, hey, here's this thing you've never paid for your entire life. We're now going to charge you $30 a month for it. But I am a human, and I am right here. And it's really hard to tell me no at this moment in time. (laughs) So please put your credit card details right here, and let's go. It's going to be awesome. So, I mean, honestly, there were like five or six things that we were doing uh, early on in the onboarding, and it it was a convenient tool to uh, accomplish basically all of it. One more off-topic question, and then I'll get back to on-topic. These onboarding specialists almost feel like unicorn superheroes, because what you're telling me is they're product experts, they're teachers, and they're sellers who can ask you for money. Like, where did you find, like, how do you even build a team like that? (laughs) I am uh, I'm wondering, let's see if I can embarrass Keon one more time, because Keon was an onboarding specialist at Superhuman and was absolutely, is absolutely phenomenal at that. Keon worked in Apple, uh, at, in, in an Apple retail environment, helping people with arguably this very same uh, use case. It's kind of selling as well as product discovery, product experts, uh, and then at um at startups afterwards, kind of understanding the, the the sort of pace and energy of a startup environment, understanding customers, understanding products. That being said, I can I can generalize and share. Well, first of all, I agree with you. Yes, onboarding specialists are unicorns. They are, they straddle sales, success, customer support, implementation. They have to be really good at like four, maybe five customer facing disciplines in order to succeed. We found some really great people from that customer facing operations sort of world that I kind of just described. 
teaching was an incredible, incredible source of really amazing teammates. People who'd basically been in front of, you know, 30 unruly kids, you know, in the classroom are amazing at deeply understanding material, figuring out what's working and what's not working with the audience and conveying that information such that they get it in a 30 minute block. You know, not a 30 minute onboarding is basically a lesson. So teachers were quite excellent at the role and also really good from an energy and kind of, you know, you want to sort of spend time with them point of view. And then across different parts of, of customer facing roles. So, you know, we had, we, we had excellent support people, customer success people, account managers or implementation folks. Like they've all, they've, there have been lots of ways to find success in that role from, from different walks of life. Really funny you mentioned that. We have three folks on the POCUS team that came from a teaching background. And the person at POCUS who is helping customers get to value the most has a has a teacher background. So it's a, we, we love that background also. So that is, that's a really fun anecdote. Um, yeah. So um, I, I, I thought it would be helpful maybe to, to share a little bit about the scaling process. Yeah. Um, yeah. At a certain point in time as, as the founding team, you know, you need to be able to scale certain motions that, that you're doing. Um, when it comes to onboarding and talking to your customers, really there's this critical consideration that I think should precede any decision to scale, which is, do we have the R&D resources? Do we have the engineers, designers, product managers to devote to onboarding as a means to scaling? Or do we need to continue to put that resource towards the core product? And we're still actually in a pretty early stage of the company where we need to learn from our customers, capture bugs, build brands, help customers reach value. You know, if the product that you're building is relatively simple and you've built the core product and now you have the resources to put towards onboarding, then put the resources towards onboarding. It will help you scale and it is a value uh, value add way of spending R and D resources. That's not to say, you know, it's a binary choice between concierge and not concierge. I mean, Apple, and again, is a great example of a company that builds incredible products, but also invests a lot in their human-led uh, experiences. You walk into any Apple store around the world and you have an incredibly well-informed, helpful kind, positive person who can help you through the, the user's journey. So they do both, right? It's not an either or, um, but they invest, they invest the right level in both axes of the customer experience. And I, I've always found that incredibly inspiring. I don't, I don't think it makes sense to think about it as just like you pick a lane and you, you charge down that lane forever and ignore the other lane. So yeah, you can, you can kind of automate your onboarding, but still have the human-led implementation to help customers get to that 10x value, which is really, really hard to do otherwise. In our case, like I said, we had a huge surface area, huge amount of uh, stuff to build on the core product side. And so it is entirely possible to scale onboarding a surprising amount, as long as you can work on the efficiencies and make sure that you know, you're equipping the onboarding team with enough tools and automation such that they are able to be successful with each and every customer inside of a short uh, amount of time. And again, going to use the Apple analogy, just like how every single one of the people in the Apple store has a tablet with all the tools and software that they need to, to do the thing uh, for the customer really quickly. You have to think about it that way too. So in a way, you start building the operating system or your prod in internal products for that team, knowing that they in turn are literally delivering magic every single day for customers. How do you, when you continue to scale it, so this is tied to a question that Buck asked and also I wanted to talk to you about is you then went from B2C business to a B2B business. And that scaling is a 
different beast. Like yeah. to scale the B2C business, it's at a maybe a lower volume than going into B2B. I'm curious, A, what that transition looked like. And then B, how did that change the onboarding specialist role? Or maybe it didn't change it. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, it's a little bit more of a layering on top. It's kind of like Lego pieces that clip on top of one another rather than transitioning from B2C to B2B. There are certainly companies I've spoken to who have, who have hard made a pivot, like they have closed down their PLG offering, you know, removed the pricing page, replaced it with a talk to sales button, and they only do B2B. That is a path, but it's not the path that we took at Superhuman. Uh, instead, we are evolving towards selling to businesses but really building it and growing it out of the B2C user base. We sort of think about it internally as B2C to B. It's kind of like an escalator or a pathway from an individual user to a couple of users using it together on a team, shared credit card, to eventually a contract that might be 10 or more people, maybe it's 50 or 100 people. And that is driven primarily out of our existing user base, right? And so the sales team comes in takes existing users, consolidates and expands those accounts. How does that change onboarding? You then have to consider onboarding as kind of like a service or a function. It's not strictly a singular funnel that onboarding sort of sits in the middle of. It is a value that when a salesperson closes a deal can be applied to that contract, right? So those customers can then be sent over to the onboarding team to be helped and get set up for success. And in fact, you can have onboardings, you can have re-onboardings group onboardings, whatever you need, the customers who you may have had for a few months or years. Going from one-to-one to one-to-many, one to or maybe you have like a train the admin model, train the trainer model and other strategies there. Um, for Buck's question, he said, I mean, product-led sale, his question is probably related to what you just said with B2C to B. Um, did you start with B2, did a PLG model and then add on sales and um, how did you get to this? And did you use this to improve, I guess, like sales acceleration or improving your total revenue numbers? Yeah, we started with PLG. We started with a, a very sort of like, you know, reach reach customers through the product, through marketing, um, get them going on the product, albeit with a very human touch infused experience, but fundamentally PLG, right? And some of the hallmarks of, of PLG in that sense are things like your growth channels, your, your vectors are things like word of mouth, virality, referrals, invitations, and then things like social media and PR, kind of like channels that are very typically uh, intended, you know, they intend to reach a really large audience and then bring interest and intent back to the company, as opposed to targeting, well, we've got a hundred companies we're going after, we're doing ABM, we're doing events, we're kind of going after those people. Like we, we were PLG and then we sort of layering in the sales motion on top. Fortunately, in our case, our ideal customer profile is the CEO founder leader. In the B2C world, we're sort of planting seeds every single time with a single customer, uh, much like yourself, Alexa, a few years ago, right? <laughs> to yeah. say, if this person- We just loves- bought Superhuman. We bought the team plan. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Um, if I'm not mistaken, we, uh, you know, we've had you as an individual customer for maybe two, three years, four years. Yeah, maybe at this point. yeah exactly. So in our case, it was kind of like a seed planting strategy of like, mm. hey, let's be B2C, but we know this layers into something bigger in the future, right? And if, if as a founder of an early product or a leader of growth or product at an early stage company, you can kind of see into the future or at least craft a path of how you're, what you're doing currently is going to be beneficial a year or two from now, that's always advantageous. Then you're sort of staving off a pivot later on 
you're sort of going down a path that every action you take today helps you in the future. So it's land and expand, but you're landing with literally a consumer, not just one person at a company. Because yeah. I wasn't at Pocus when I started using Superhuman. So you're landing me as an individual consumer and then expanding uh, yeah. once we, yeah, that, that's a, I like that model. That's, and, and then how Charlie's recent question. So it sounds like now we have product teams, growth teams, marketing teams, and then we have, you also will have onboarding specialists, maybe you bring on sales, maybe you bring on customer success. How do you align all these go-to-market functions when you have such a kind of, it feels like the motion, everything has to work. Like it has to be a well-oiled machine. So how do you align this and make it happen? Yeah. I mean, I think this is the challenge of any customer leader or any sort yeah, go-to-market leader of any company, quite honestly. There's a continuous need to look at all your go-to-market functions, starting with maybe the people who engage like in the marketing team with, with prospects who are not yet customers all the way through to if you have a sales team, maybe it's your BDR, SDR, AEAM, CSM crew, and then on the more B2C side, your implementation or onboarding team, and then your support team, right? So right there, you've got six or seven sort of possible uh, functions and units. And again, at a meta level, I think you have to constantly take a look at those at least once a quarter and say, you know, strategy-wise, in terms of what the customer's experience is, do we, do we cover the customer journey in all the key and critical points? Do we have people or you know, delivering experiences at all of the moments that matter? That's the first step. Indeed, the first step is what are all the moments that matter? The second step is do we have people you know, covering those moments? And then the third step is are any of the activities or the goals that we have set the teams working in those areas in conflict with any of the other areas? And if you kind of go through it in that one, two, three step, flow, it usually is pretty simple, right? Like you just define what's important, then you staff it up and make sure that the incentives don't uh, live in conflicts with one another. But what does that imply? It means that as your business grows and as you explore new go-to-market motions, you're constantly reevaluating this thing. You know, you're constantly changing the charter or the responsibilities of a team. You might change the comp plan. You might yeah. have a comp plan one quarter and get rid of it the next quarter because it's no longer serving the needs of the business or the customer flow. Um, and so you just have to be okay with that level of flexibility and change, uh, both as a leader and indeed as someone on teams. Such a good point across all startups, especially with product-led growth business. It's constant experimentation. Um, and the point around compensation and incentives, I've heard that so much. <laughs> it's what is like if you have the product that can sell itself versus sales, like who's comped on what and how do you incentivize sales to just go after the opportunities that they should be focusing on versus the ones that would convert without them. Right. So that makes a ton of sense. Um, Alex's question is a good one. Um, based on what we're talking about, you started out with B2C or PLG motion, which is still like, seems on fire. Like I feel like everyone I talk to is constantly checking out superhuman or signing up or tweeting about all the reasons they love it. And then you also have a product-led sales motion where you're saying, hey, we're trying to get into B2B businesses, really land and expand there and figure out how can we roll up all these individual users for an enterprise license. How do you prioritize the two and maybe other initiatives that you're working on as a company? The, the, the really, really basic answer is where is the highest uh, impact for effort, right? Mm -hmm. and if it seems like the highest impact for effort is going to be more on the PLG growth product side, you know, driven by a PM and a pod of engineers, designers, and analysts, that's where the resource and priority then goes. 
But if it seems like the ROI is higher on the PLS side, I think like that can in turn break down into product investment to make the sort of teams offering better. It can be more go-to-market operations, RevOps type work to set up the tooling and environment and information flow for those teams. Or it could be the sales leadership or the customer success leadership to define playbooks and come up with workflows. If that's where the ROI seems highest, then you put your you put your chips in that basket. And uh, again, that changes. It changes quite frequently. Um, we've had whole quarters where we do a lot of PLG type stuff that grows teams things in the products, virality flows, invite hooks, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we've had entire quarters where the bulk of focus has been, well, let's build the core team offering out a little bit more and let's empower our go-to-market teams to sell that and you know, put marketing pages up that describe the value and really connect the dots end to end. I think you have to be flexible at a, at a sort of senior leadership level to understand, well, what do we need to do? Where's the ROI the highest and, and sort of you know, put your efforts in, in in one or the other area. But it can be hard to really figure out the ROI, right? For especially for PLG, it can take a while to actually run those experiments. Yeah, definitely. At the end of the day, those sorts of decisions are data informed, right? Like it'll be a gut <laughs> sense. It'll be a sense that, like, oh, you know, if we did this thing, a hundred percent of users will benefit. If we did this other thing, maybe ten percent of users will benefit. Mm. Let's pick the format. I don't know if I'm. If I'm like wrong on those numbers, but it's it's a it's a scale thing. I, I kind of have the sense that the former is better than the latter. You can try and get more detailed and 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 you know get your back of napkin math to something a little bit more precise, but it will be wrong. <laughs> so it has the fact to be that you're telling me that we should be data informed instead of data driven. That is my biggest takeaway from today. Someone as analytical and uh, <laughs> data focused as you. That is such a good takeaway that I think some companies can get in analysis paralysis of what is the exact correlation between this initiative and the exact dollars that it turned out. And it's uh, it's hard to do that, especially in the early days and especially when you're early days of setting up a new function um, or a new growth plan and trying to constantly experiment to figure out what the, the exact ROI is. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. Super hard to do that early days. You don't have enough data. The sample size is too small. You don't have enough time or resources. And what's also hard is to push back against the habit in a later stage company, which mm-hmm. is everyone's desire for precision and desire for a, a clear, like, I need to see the impact of this initiative on the bottom line. It's like, well, it doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, actually, it's these three initiatives together that move the needle. These things compound on one another. Four out of five of these initiatives won't really do anything, but they're critical infrastructure to to make the fifth one successful. So there's sort of also a need to push back and say, hey, actually, you know, we we have to be a little bit more startup-y here. We need to be a little bit more scrappy and go with a strong belief that this is going to be impactful. Speaking of early days, I want to make sure I'm not missing um, any questions. There were two earlier on. One was, what is the a large enough user base so that the product market fit of 40% ratio is significant? And the second one is before you have a single dollar of revenue, what were some growth initiatives that you found successful? I like to think that as as soon as you hit about 100 people, that's when you can start looking at that 40% number and and really, you know, knowing that, you know, at an intuitive level, you can attribute each percentage point to like an actual human being at that point. If it's below 100, it's like, no, it's too, too few. Go ask more people. And if you can't ask more people, if you're selling in a you know, in a space where there aren't enough buyers, maybe there's literally only 78 companies 
right, that you're targeting, then go and talk to the people. Don't ask them a survey question and try and get all KPIs about it. Just speak to them for half an hour each and you'll probably have a good sense. But yeah, I like to say, I like to say 100, but like the more data you get, the better. Um, there's probably a more data science precise answer to that question. But for me, that's sort of a heuristic I like to use. Growth plays to get from $0 to acquire your first dollars. Well, we already talked about showing up in person. That helps a lot uh, if you're able to, or at least over Zoom or, or video call. In Superhuman's case, we ran a lot of marketing initiatives that generated interest and intrigue in our ICP before we even acquired our first dollar. And then we deliberately put up the wait list because we weren't ready to actually give the products to customers. It was known on, on our side to be not ready yet. But we kind of built up the interest and the demand ahead of time. That solved a whole lot of downstream problems. That meant we weren't fighting to acquire customers at the same time as working really hard to onboard and then retain those customers. We, we, we had the demand piece solved for like years, thanks to some, some PR, some marketing, you know, brand work, et cetera. So that was a player I think was, was really, really helpful that sort of sustained the first couple of years and really helps to focus in on the portion of the customer funnel that early on is the most important, which is onboarding and retention. And there was a good one someone wrote in is that the scent was superhuman email signature. Was that, did that end up being a, a good distribution channel for you all and, or any other hacks like that? Did it end up, it is the best <laughs> distribution channel. I mean, email is, email is inherently viral. Um, you know, it's a communication tool. If a product, if it's possible to find a similarly high surface area way of, of, you know, spreading your product go for it. It's like one of the best things you can do as an early growth practitioner is to get that, you know, get that footprint. So yeah, it's it, to this day, it continues to be an incredible vector and source of initial awareness, usually not necessarily high converting traffic, but initial awareness that then turns into traffic later on that then turns into a buying customer. For us other, I think the other main distribution channel was, was word of mouth. And it was built on a core product and experience that we poured a ton of love and energy into to make really good. I think a lot is often said in sort of a growth and marketing land about channels and ways to reach customers and so on. And I think not enough is said about the value of an amazing core product and experience that might be delivered by, you know, a go-to-market team or, or human-led as the primary means of generating true word of mouth, true virality, then when we knew that we had that, we built into the product ways to refer, ways to invite, ways to basically allow customers to, to do the referring in a more streamlined way. But you can't put the cart before the horse. You have to make sure that the customer actually loves the product and then make it easy for them to share. And how do you do that? Well, you, you really get your head down and figure out how to make the product amazing and how to make the experience yeah. amazing. It's true. I think so many founders and VCs will say, you know, they would die and not be able to do their job without superhuman. Like that is like the best way I would say the same, like I couldn't do my job now without it. And it's, uh, I think that's the best marketing that you can get uh, folks just like continuously talking about that. Might have time for one more question on then how do you, I, I, we talked about like, how do you attribute revenue and all these different strategies and how do you be analytical? There's a question of how do you do the cost benefit analysis between growth strategies of word of mouth, automated approaches, have you found a golden ratio or a threshold? How do you figure out which growth strategies to be running and doubling down in? I think too much is said about specific channels in growth and marketing. 
I think it's like too much is said about, oh, well, HubSpot grows primarily from word of mouth. So you should do word of mouth too. Or, you know, this company grows 80% through paid media. So you should do paid media too. It's like, that's not actually how I think it works. I think what that misses is the fact that HubSpot has word of mouth, but also a ton of engineering as marketing and also a ton of really good monetization strategies that gets free users. Mm -hmm. Also a blog that's incredible. But those yeah. things complement each other and work in tandem. That company growing through paid marketing uh, will also have a product that's really easy to get going on, really slick funnel engineering, you know, a whole bunch of growth strategies that complement. And so the way I think about it is as a company, you need to list out probably, you know, what are the 15 or 20 channels or strategies you could deploy and then figure out the sets, like figure out the collection of channels that work well with each other and then invest in those collectively. I don't know about a threshold or a golden ratio, but you have to figure out that collection. Mm -hmm. And one really helpful heuristic is to say, where do we have unfair advantages mm. as a founding team, as, as leaders? I love that. Where do we have either tons of experience, tons of industry connections that you know are really hard to come by or some other unfair advantage that means that you're already you know, five steps down that path without even really trying? Uh, that should be a huge input into which ones you pick. This was awesome. I, we covered, I, I hope that you can now like take a breath and get a glass of water because we just covered so many incredible topics. I didn't even let other people ask questions. I just kept grilling you. Um, <laughs> but the everything from like, how do you define product market fit? What is the role of onboarding specialists? How to be a data informed, maybe not data driven, thinking through different growth strategies, um, B to C to B to B. That was this was incredible, and um, I really, really, really appreciate all of your insights. I feel like every time I talk to you or read something that you put out, I just learn something new about this world, and um, feel honored that you are here. So thank you so much for joining us, Grob. Thank you, really appreciate it. Um, I'm flattered. Thank you so much uh, for for putting this on Alexa and team. Um, and yeah, always really, really fun to talk through these things. I think there's a lot of counterintuitive, maybe contrarian perspectives that I think run run counter to the narrative. Indeed, that was the topic of your, of my chapter uh, in, in in the playbook. Uh, and I'm very, very excited to share what those learnings are. I'm excited too. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. And thank you everyone else for joining. It was so good to see you all. And we will see you next time. 